Hello and welcome to the Amateur of Life and Death podcast. I'm Liz Plumpton. Each episode takes a look at a different aspect of the wonderful world of amateur theatre and features an amateur theatre maker talking about their theatrical life, theatrical loves and the times when they've died on stage. Our backstage pass feature takes us behind the scenes at the Crescent Theatre Birmingham to discover more about what goes into making a great amateur production. This month's episode focuses on a powerful play called There Are No Beginnings by Charlie Miles. First performed in 2019, the play takes a fresh look at the lives of women in Leeds between 1975 and 1980, during which time the so-called Yorkshire Ripper, Peter Sutcliffe, was at large. I'll be speaking to actor and director Alex Arkson, who is directing the Crescent Theatre Company's forthcoming production of the play. Meanwhile, John will be talking to sound designer Kevin Middleton about the challenges of designing sound for the play, which includes the opening note, the play should be surrounded by male voices slash recordings slash music. They should be pressing in on every side. Thanks, Liz. Hello, Kevin. Hi, John. Welcome to the Amateur of Life and Death podcast. Thank you. Now in its second season. There Are No Beginnings is set in Leeds in the late 1970s at a time when the terrifying crimes of the Yorkshire Ripper were being inflicted on northern towns and cities. It's written by Charlie Miles and was first staged at the Bramall Rock Void at Leeds Playhouse as recently as 2019. It is being staged here at the Crescent Theatre Birmingham from the 22nd to the 29th of October 2022 in our intimate and wonderful Ron Barber studio. The author's note at the beginning of the play script lets us know that this play was written for and about the women of Leeds of the 1970s and beyond. Women who have failed to be portrayed with voice and agency. Women who continue to be underestimated and forgotten. Before the note goes on to say that this is not a play about the Yorkshire Ripper. There are four female characters in the piece. June, a kind of social worker. Sharon, June's daughter, who ends up going to university. Helen, who is a client of June in her role as a kind of social worker. Um, And finally, Fiona, a policewoman trying to progress a career um, in a less progressive time uh, when she's a woman. These are the actors on stage. There is, however, another voice on stage that is given real prominence, presence, dialogue and has considerable stylistic impact on the piece. And that's where you come in, Kevin. Yeah, yeah, there's there's an awful lot of, of sound in this piece. Um, so much so that the, the author even kind of mentions it in her preamble to the to the play. Um, there's a lot of news reports of the time. Um, so we hear the the voices of news reporters, men talking about the Ripper and, and, and what's going on there, you know, about bodies being found about another attack that kind of thing there's a lot of there's a lot of stage directions about the sound which is yeah. really unusual yeah. you know normally you get a, a bell rings or you know a phone rings or whatever mm-hmm. it might be um and in this we get all sorts of of um direction about how the sound should 
be, you know, where mm. it should come from, how it should feel. And the um, dialogue's not always straight, is it? So the way that the way that the playwright <clears throat> has done it in the script is bold italics mm -hmm. is what the sound will say, mm -hmm. um, played over um, the speakers. Yeah. Um, but the, those words aren't always straightforward sentences. Often they're cut up and overlaid and that sort of thing. Yeah, so there's a lot of... Um, I mean, it, it talks about vinyl skipping and, and, you know, static from records and that kind of thing. And then written into the dialogue, there's kind of skips in the dialogue mm. where syllables or words will repeat. Um, and so obviously there's a technical aspect to doing that. But the I think the impact of that is that it really kind of emphasises the, the broken nature of life at that time, you yeah. know, how how disruptive um, the Ripper was to day-to-day to, to -day life, I guess, for women. And as an example of the playwright's ambition for the play's soundscape, I'm just going to read out one of the stage directions from Act 4 of There Are No Beginnings. Sound starts somewhere, and then it spreads. It comes from in front of us and behind us. It comes from all around us. It surrounds Sharon and Helen, presses in on all sides, down from above, up from below, all around, like water in a bathtub, slowly drowning them. Kevin, how do you plan to realise these directions? And what other challenges does the playwright pose, the hmm. sound engineer? The way that Alex, the director, is staging this is that the audience are going to be sitting in the round. Right. Um, and so at the moment, I, I initially was thinking about quadraphonic sound, so kind of sound from each corner. Right. Um, so just for the listener, quadraphonic yeah. is sound from three directions. Four directions. Four directions, Four directions, directions yeah. Whereas most people at home, say they're watching their TV, will have yep. stereo sound. Yeah, exactly. Which is left and right from yep. two directions. Yeah. So um, reading some more of the stage directions where it says it comes from above, it comes from below, it surrounds us. So I started thinking about octophonic sound, so sound coming from up above and below yeah. from four corners. Um, and so at the moment, that's how I think I'm going to approach this so that I can really bounce the sound around the stage. Yeah. So sometimes it might be coming from opposite you. Sometimes it might be behind you, underneath you, above you. So um, in terms of, uh, and this is a wonderful phrase that I've never heard, and I'm sure a lot of our listeners have never heard it, octophonic sound. Yes. Um, in terms of the, the, the technicality of creating that soundscape, You'd need to lay down eight different channels of mm -hmm. sound, all slightly different or yep. similar, mm -hmm. um, and then mix that into a final track. And that track will then go to a particular. So I'll probably speakers. have I will probably have eight tracks playing, going to different speakers. Right. So yeah, they'll play simultaneously. They'll play simultaneously, but there will be different different bits of sound coming from different speakers wow. so you know when when you've got your headphones on and you're listening to to music sometimes you know the the trumpet might be slightly to your right or slightly to your left or whatever um and i'm going to try and create something similar but coming from eight different directions and in terms of the the technical capabilities <clears throat> of the studio does it have enough uh sound jacks in the wall or will you have to lay extra cable to i will have work? to lay extra cable and when will be the first time you actually hear what you have developed in quad in in octophonic sound octophonic sound um so that will be when we actually get into the space that's when we will start to hear 
what it's going to sound like. So before that, it's a bit of guesswork it's from you. Guesswork from me, hoping, yeah. hoping it's going to do what I think it's going to yeah. do. So you're going to have to listen to it, and I presume the director, the cast, are going to have to listen to it. But then there might be a process of very quick revision, yeah, or remixing, yeah, quite possibly to get it right. God, how exciting! So thankfully, working with me on this, we've got a new sound designer that's joined us, um, and she actually works at the BBC. Okay. So she's she's gifted in this area, hopefully, um, in terms good. of you know turning yeah. things around. And yeah. Do you think this is the most complex sound? Uh, design you've had to do one of mm. yeah i mean I've, I've had quite a few complex sound designs in the past when we did um lord of the flies um the director there wanted a never-ending soundscape so there was constantly birds and and water running and wind blowing and things like that and the sound never stopped through the whole thing um and that presents a couple of challenges because one you've got to find all the sound for that soundscape and blend it and make sure that it, it kind of is audible but it doesn't overpower the action and it's getting it kind of supporting the mood and not mm. overtaking it but equally once you've got something playing and you've got a soundscape like that you, there are bits that come in and go and um, if we're in a technical rehearsal and we decide we're going to stop and go back and I have to stop the sound then it's like we're gonna have to wait five minutes guys because we've got to get all these tracks to get to the right point before we carry on oh, I see. um yeah. so you know it presents challenges that way so it's um, not easy to skip forwards and back not always in that scenario it's not this one it will be much easier to skip forwards and back although there's a bit of me that thinks i kind of want there to always be some sound in mm. this it talks about rumbling it talks about vinyl mm. scratching and static and static says. and yeah. i just wonder if there should always be something mm. going on sonically yeah. um uh, even if it's even if it's kind of um just some low level white noise or static mm. in the background just so that we never we never we're never left alone because i think part of the part of the purpose of these um recordings these male voices the all the recordings are male voices mm. it's there's no men on stage but we are surrounded by oppressed by at yeah. times i think um, oppressed is the right word here and that's the sort of menacing background presence of the ripper yeah who sort of is is always there but never there exactly and, and so i'm kind of and that's, that's that's where i'm coming from always there i don't think there should be any let up yeah. from the oppression and so i'm and Just, the, the male voices it, it, it specifies in the script that every company that puts this on should record their own voices so is that what you're doing yes except for there's there's one tape um that was there, there was a um a tape that was sent into the police by an imposter um and that was played out on the news and we were going to use the original recording i listened to that uh while i was uh, researching for this and i didn't realize he was an imposter apparently so yeah yeah but yeah he, first time i heard it i thought he it does was have the real quite guy. a sort of robotic um ghostly menacing voice yeah um and and the actors that you've got for this is it just one actor you're going to record lots of times so we've or? already recorded them we've recorded four or five different actors because the thinking is these are the news reports and you would have had different news readers yeah. you might have the local news you might have the national news you know and uh, just a slight change of subject, Kevin, mm. as well as uh, lending your hand to sound and getting your head round octophonic sound. <laughs> have I got that right? You have got that right, yeah. Octophonic sound. Uh, you have another important role in the theatre. Can mm -hmm. you tell us about that? Yes. 
Uh, so I edit this podcast. Oh, yes. There's um, another one on top of that. <laughs> I think, are you getting at the fact that I'm the chairman of the yes. theatre? Yes, so you're sort of at the um, top of the tree, really. Kind of. Um, yeah, so I'm, I'm the chairman. I took over a couple of years back as, as chair. Um, so I don't know what to say about it. Well, the next question will tell you what to say. <laughs> What's it like to be chairman? What does it What does it mean <laughs> in practice? And how much of your time does it take? It takes up a lot of my time. Um, and uh, when I say it's horrible, it's, it's obviously it's not entirely horrible, but I don't think anybody joins an organisation such as an amateur theatre company to end up essentially running a half million pound business for free, mm. which is, you know, yeah. what as chairman I'm doing. Mm. Um and it's not that I do it all alone. I'm supported by, a, you know, a board of management and a group of paid staff. Um, but every member of the theatre feels like they have a right to my ear, which obviously they do. Um, I, I'm never going to be able to please two or three hundred people with everything, every decision that we as a board make. Mm. Um, and it's, yeah, there's always going to be someone who's upset by something we're doing. Um, and that's that's unfortunate. Um, and, you know, we never set out to upset anybody, but it's just the nature of things um, when we have to make difficult decisions. So what, what would you say are your key responsibilities? My key responsibility is to... Um, well, to make sure the theatre acts legally, actually, uh, there is there is a legal responsibility on me and all of the trustees, all of the board of management, um, to make sure that the theatre is trading legally. So that ranges from <clears throat> employment law. We employ 20-odd people. Um, as many as that now? Mm, wow. Most of them are part-time, mm. but it's, yeah, it's about 20 people that we employ. Um, so we've got to make sure that we, we are a good employer. Um, we have to make sure that we're compliant with all the licensing laws, and that might be licensing in the bar, the mm. license to perform, um, license to use children in mm. productions and all this kind of stuff. So a lot of it is about making sure that we're legal, but it's also about making sure that um, we are continuing the hundred years almost that the Crescent has been in operation and, and the kind of to retain the values exactly the yeah. values of the crescent you know and to make sure that we can continue putting on amazing production do you get a buzz from the job do you enjoy it at any point so i do there are there are obviously bits that i enjoy um i think it's great when we when we put something on the stage and you see the audience reaction you see the the critics giving us favourable reviews mm. um, and all that kind of stuff. That's really rewarding to, to you know, feel that, that I've been part of enabling that to happen. Um, it's really rewarding when I talk to some of our staff members and they talk about how much they enjoy working here. We recognise that we can't pay the top rates that, that some of the other professional theatres are paying, um, but we can try to offer... Um, you know a friendly and supportive workplace mm. and people really appreciate that and we give people that that space to learn to grow and we recognize that people come here they learn they grow and they move on mm. um, and that's unfortunately a fact of life but mm. you know it, it does mean that we're doing some good in the world because they're moving on and they're making something of their lives doing something they enjoy yeah and uh, and making theater in this part of the world stronger absolutely uh, which that's an achievement as well, isn't it? And, and how did you end up um, in the role that you How had? did I end up in the role? So my predecessor, Andrew Lowry, um, found himself 
in a situation where he had to return to his native Scotland. Um, and this was during lockdown. Um, and so we we were chatting for about six months about whether I was even interested in taking on the role. Um, because it would be at a point... So the, the role is an elected role. It goes out to the membership to vote on. Um, anyone can stand against me if they want to take it on. That's all part of the Constitution. But because Andrew was leaving mid-term, we needed to put someone in. So prior to being the chairman, I was the um, treasurer for right. about five years. Okay. So um, I was a senior member of the board. And that's I, not an insignificant role, no, is it? No. Yeah. So I had a detailed understanding of all the finances and the business activities that were going on. Um, I kind of had a decent understanding of, of what was involved. Um, and as I say, we chatted for about six months once he knew that he was going to be going back to Scotland about whether I would stand in until the next set of elections. And kind of reluctantly, I agreed to do it. I was nervous because I think Andrew, um, Andrew had retired, so he had more time to devote to the role. He wasn't always retired when he was in the role, but at that point he was. Um, I work full time, so and it is a big time commitment to, yeah, to take absolutely. this on. Um, it's a dedication, really. Kind of is. I'm here pretty much seven days a week, yeah. um, even if it's only for a couple of hours. It's, it's a, um, a vocation, not a job, really. Yeah, and as I say, no one joins an amateur theatre group thinking, "I'll do all the administration." That's that's what I'm joining for. Mm. Um, and so, for all the people that that take on these administrative roles on the board, heads of section, you know, all, all those thankless jobs that if if no one did them, the theatre would fail to exist. You know, someone needs to do all that stuff. Um, and so I'm just incredibly grateful to all those people that support yeah. me and support the theatre. They're unsung by heroes, they aren't they? They're enablers. Absolutely. Because when when you watch an actor on stage, you're, that actor is very visible. Mm. Um and you, you know that person is involved and you know what they've achieved and you know what they've done. Yeah. But you don't know what paper's been shuffled over what desk in the background. That is just goes, you know, if a tree falls in the woods and nobody sees it, <laughs> did it even happen? And Yeah, and I think, I think some of what we do is so hidden. I guess that's a good thing that people aren't aware of it, you know, happening because it's just happening seamlessly and we, we mm. you know... We keep it in the background and it just happens. But, um, yeah, there is a lot of stuff that needs to happen to keep an organisation like this afloat. Mm. Um, and, yeah, I'm just incredibly grateful to all the people who support me in, in making that happen. Yeah, well well done. Keep going. <laughs> Thank you. Keep trucking. <laughs> uh, and finally, Ooh. we are now in season two of the Amateur of Life and Death podcast. We are. So the time is right to unleash upon the world our quick-fire scattergun guest interrogation technique, <laughs> backstage binaries. <laughs> I will fire word pairings at you. Okay. Make your choices and reveal yourself. You ready? Ready. On stage or backstage? Backstage. Studio or main house? Main house. Act or direct? Direct. Lighting or sound? Sound. Rehearsal? Or performance? Or rehearsal. Tech or dress? Strangely, tech. Contro Everyone hates a tech. Controversial. Sing or dance? Oh, that's a difficult one. Sing. Hair or makeup? <laughs> I haven't got hair, so it would have to be makeup. 
Modern or period? Modern. Comedy or tragedy? Comedy. Set or props? Ooh, props. Shakespeare or Sondheim? Ugh. Um, Sondheim. That's actually really revealing and interesting. Is it? Yeah, I think so. Well, it's what's first revealing time we've done about that. It? But, um, what, what did you hear that you didn't expect to hear? I didn't expect you to say tech. Um, I didn't expect you to say comedy. I suppose actually thinking about what you've directed and stuff, that I've, does I've make directed sense. a fair amount of comedy. Yeah. And even when I've directed fairly tragic stuff, there's been some comedy in it. Yeah. And modern or period, you said modern. I, I'm a very modern boy. Yeah. Fascinating. Well, Kevin, thank you so much for coming on our podcast. We've thank learned you. a lot about octophonic sound. <laughs> uh, we've added new words to our vocabulary and we've delved into the overwhelming world of uh, theatre governance. So, yeah. Thank you very much for oh, coming on the podcast. Most welcome, thank you. That was John talking to sound designer Kevin Middleton. Right, so I am delighted to be joined by actor and director Alex Arkson. Alex is directing the Crescent Theatre's forthcoming production of There Are No Beginnings by Charlie Miles. Hi, Alex. Hello. So let's start by talking a little bit about this play. Um, so it's on at the Crescent Theatre from the 22nd to the 29th of October in the studio. It's quite a recent play. It was first performed in 2019, just kind of before Covid. What drew you to the play? Well, that's a good question. I, I, the thing that really drew me to it was the ordinary women living in extraordinary times. And what I absolutely love, there's no glorification of it they are just ordinary women and i think it's a fascinating play because it's dealing with such a a dark subject but it has tremendous humor through the characters there's such a freshness it's very organic so the play begins with the actor playing june and that's how um that's how the part is described in the script yeah. it says the actor playing june speaking the following lines there are no beginnings. There are no endings. When we start something, we don't know that we have started on it until, until we are far down that road and we can look back. The play set in Leeds between 1975 and 1980. Tell us a bit about what it's like to look back on that time and on the subject matter. I think for me, the one thing they've been absolutely drilling into myself is you've got to do that period of time justice. You can't sugarcoat anything. You've got to absolutely honour the script. And, and I think you have to convey what it is like for women who are living at that time. I mean, and also, I mean, I mean, it says, are we looking back? This could be now. Yeah. This could be now. So I think, you know, it's interesting, isn't it, that that period of the play being set, so it's between 1975 and 80. I'm pretty sure that's before you were born. I don't know exactly how old you are. Oh, it's before 31. I can, <laughs> before I can remember. Um, and the near past is an interesting space to work in because we kind of think we know what it was like. We've got TV footage from that time. We've got yeah. images. We've got the music from that time. Um, 
So it feels sort of familiar because it's within living memory of maybe us or people we know yep. and we can draw on. But I, it's also arguably a bit too close for critical distance. Do you think it's harder or easier to direct and perform a piece like this compared to, say, a pre-20th century period piece like an Ibsen or a, you know, a coward? Harder. Harder, no doubt about it. Because with a pre-20th century piece, you, you're not going to talk to anyone who lived through that time. Yes, we have some context, but we don't have actual context of what it was like of people living through that time. Look, I mean... Okay, just in my cast alone, Paula. Paula has talked about living through that period yeah. as a woman, as a young woman. Jan, Angela Daniels, who's been in rehearsals, exactly so the same. That's your production assistant. And Jan your is my production designer. assistant, and Angela yeah. Daniels is our choreographer and, and costume, costume designer. designer. Multitasking. Multitasking. Yeah, I, I would say a lot. I mean, I've never directed a pre 20th century piece, but I would definitely say it would be easier. For sure. I think, you know, what's interesting, if I reflect on that sort of time period, um, in some ways it is just as remote as, you know, the early 1900s because life in the world has changed so much. That's a pre-social media time. That's, you know, all of that pre-digital, pre-internet. But in another way, if you were doing a, you know, let's say a, I don't know, George Bernard Shaw or, a, or an Oscar Wilde, you would kind of consciously think, oh, well, people walk differently in that time and they yeah. wore very different yeah. costumes and the yeah. co- social, uh, you know, mannerisms and the social conventions were different. Very. And something like the 1970s and 80s, they kind of were, but it's almost imperceptible to us yeah. now because we're too close. Yeah, we are. And I think, and that's been the hardest because like you said, we do have critical distance, but we don't have that much critical distance yeah and particularly with the subject matter we're dealing with again i come back to has it changed are we that much further forward i don't think so and the one thing i've came i've come back to is when i've read this plan directing this play i think god we take things for granted men you know we take some things in our life that we have to do for granted and women unfortunately can't take certain things for granted and i think that very much informs my direction of the piece and still can't and still can't i i've just sat in on a little bit of your rehearsal um earlier today and um there's a one part of the play where the character of a policewoman is giving a talk at the local secondary school to girls about how to basically avoid being a victim um of the yorkshire ripper and it really strikes you that these are the same things that these you know, messages that women a, are still yeah, really uh, yeah. being told. Don't today. walk after dark, you know. Phone, phone ahead, you know. Yeah. Let's let someone know. To Tell someone where to. you're going. Yeah. Um, you know, don't make eye contact with strange yeah. men. Yeah. <laughs> All yeah. kinds, of, you know. Yeah. yeah. Um, Listen, look, be aware. Absolutely. Yeah. I I think that, I think that's clever from Charlie Mars because. She makes a point in the play. The character Fiona says, well, in 50 years' time, things will be different. 50 is a very interesting choice. Yeah. I think she's subtly foreboding here and telling us that nothing yeah. has really changed. Because she could just say, in 10 years or 20 yes. years. She makes a point of saying, in 50 years, things will be different. 
yes and i mm. suppose that's the that's the privilege of being a playwright writing a play with the benefit yeah if that's a benefit yeah of absolutely of knowing yeah. where you know where yeah. we are now um i think what strikes me as well is i think it's a very clever play very. because i think it almost it also says what else is there to say about this man like we all the the, the media world and that's now you know multiple sources youtube netflix or you know all yeah. the different ways that we consume yeah. media is really saturated with true crime yeah absolutely you know i actually i mentioned somebody a couple of weeks ago or uh, we're doing this play called there are no beginnings and it's sort of set during the time of the yorkshire ripper and they said oh is it a true crime thing about peter suckliffe and i said no <laughs> It's a, like it's the opposite of that, whatever the yeah. opposite of that yeah. is, because you know we're very familiar with that genre, and, we are. and it, I understand the appeal. You know, I, I you know there is a fascination. Sure. I, I get that. Yeah. Um, but I think by by saying I'm going to set a play during this time with, with the backdrop of these crimes, but actually I'm not interested in saying anything about this man. No. What else is there to say? And really, who cares? And why are we focusing on him? Yeah. It's um, about it's about the women who lived through this period. So we've touched on this a little bit already, but dramatisations of the events surrounding serial killers and their crimes can tend to glorify male violence. And there's also this kind of fascination with the mystery surrounding the hunt mm. of the murderer. So if you look about look at screen dramas over the years about both Peter Sutcliffe and about Jack the Ripper, who was not who was never caught hundred years earlier, um, the killer his nicknames, his methods, the hunt for him is always very front and centre. And it can often feel like female victims are just relegated to gory cameos. Yeah. Charlie Miles has made a very deliberate choice in this play that we never hear the killer's name. The stage becomes a platform for women's voices yeah. and women's experiences. Has that decision by the playwright affected how you've approached the play and the subject matter um, with your cast in rehearsals? Well, I've always said you're the crux of this. Every rehearsal, this story is about you. You four, you four women, Helen, Sharon, June, Fiona. And I think that's really important because like you say, there isn't a character in a piece called Peter Sutcliffe. It's these four women. And, and it's very interesting, all the male figures in the play, they're referenced, but we never see them. I mean, Dennis is always out driving, you know, he's, he's, that's a long, husband, yeah, he's yeah. parking that car for a long time, isn't it? You know, we, and I think that's a very clever and deliberate choice to show that it is about the women and a male character would actually take away from what Charlie Miles has created with this play, I think. Yeah. I guess I, I'm always interested in sort of why now, like why this play now, what does this play have to say about women's lives today? And some of the recent cases that we've spoken about have, have sadly happened since this play was written and performed in 2019. So we've had the murders of Sarah Everard, Sabina Nessa, Bieber Henry and Nicole Smallman, who we touched on earlier. What do you think this play has to say about women's lives in 2022? Um, that it's still happening. Still, I mean, I read I read something on BBC News the other day, and it was from July. Sixteen women alone in London in the last year had been murdered at the hands of a male, and that's we're in two thousand and twenty-one. 
I mean, I mean, the players. I, I think Charlie Miles is saying that it's still happening. We're not much further forward. Well, we're not. I mean, you look yeah. recently. The, there was the reclaim the night in back. I think that was that was the, it was the Sarah Everard. Yes, yeah. there was a vigil yeah. um, in London, and that was yeah. while the, there were still COVID lockdown restrictions. Yeah. It was quite controversial the actions of the police. Yeah, very. Um, in trying to prevent that people yeah. congregating mm. there. Um, the play touches on the beginnings of the Reclaim the Night movement. Yeah. Say a little bit about that aspect of it. Well, it's a very yeah. I mean, it's the sort of it's the birth of it, isn't it? Yeah. I think. I mean, there's a really interesting... I mean, there's so many... It's such an... The play is fascinating in terms of the dialogue. And there's a a point in the play where Sharon says, how can you fancy men after all they're doing? You know? And it's really interesting. Mm. Why should we have to stay? Because they're told, I believe, to stay in, I think, 8 o'clock, 8.30 is there. Or a curfew. Curfew for all women in Leeds at that time. Not out after dark. Well, it should be men who have that curfew on them, not women. And I think that the actions of those curfews, the police, I think that brought the women out onto the streets. And, I mean, if you look at the pictures from the 1970s, Reclaim the Night Movement, it's absolutely amazing. The, The sheer number of women in Leeds, and I think, I believe, that women came from across the country to yeah. come to this particular march and that's yeah the power the power of uniting yeah, and against, collective, yeah. it's collective yeah. action isn't it there's yeah. that line in the play you know do you ever think that it's just one man doing all of this one pathetic boy yeah that's very that's a very yeah yeah and that why why should that one and i suppose that you know the play speaks to this why should that one um, evil individual be given so much power over yeah. so many women. Or should it be defining your your yeah. existence almost? Yeah. yeah. And you know, I mean, Charlie Miles did a lot of research in writing this play. She spoke to a lot of women who'd lived in Leeds through that yeah. period, including her own mother, mm. um, about what it was like and what it felt like at that time. And it was just um, just became a way of life. Yeah. You know. You yeah. don't walk and get the bus on your own. You don't go, you know, yeah. you phone somebody and, and you know, they, those, yeah. that, those sort of modifications to behaviour just became quite ingrained. Yeah. Thank you very much, Alex. That's yeah. been really interesting. Thank you. Let's, um, let's move now to our stock questions. Oh. A little bit more, possibly a little bit more lighthearted. <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> um, so we, we like to ask everybody... Uh, these questions about their experiences in theatre and I should say that although uh, we're talking about amateur production you are a professional actor so tell us about your first love (laughs) my first love in theatre was it's interesting because I wasn't I wasn't interested in theatre when I was a child I had no real interest and it was only when I was about 16 and in our GCSE classes we read an inspector calls and I yeah. absolutely fell in love with that. And it's still to this day my favourite play. I absolutely love it and I'd love to direct it. What was it about in the Inspector Calls that really captured your imagination? The language, the drama, the suspense, the 
I, I just think I'm so biased. I just absolutely love everything about that play. And that was absolutely my first theatrical love. I would like to reference the first play I did where I really thought, actually, I have the confidence to do this. We did, I did at college, we did The Woman in Black. Yeah. And I absolutely loved doing that. So I'd say that was, they're intertwined, but I'd say in spectacles is my first theatrical love. And what's been the love of your theatrical life? I wouldn't, I wouldn't, not that I've, I'm not dismissing or diminishing anything I've done professionally. I've enjoyed everything I've done. But as sometimes a lot of the time I felt it's been a means to an end. Mm. Does that, if rather yeah. than I've absolutely loved it, I would say, and I'm not just saying it because I'm sitting at the Crescent <laughs> Theatre, I would say when I did Two Weeks with the Queen, directed by Alan Marshall, that for me was, yeah, the love of my theatrical... So that is the stage adaptation of the children, the novel for yeah. young people by Morris Gleitzman. That's the one, yeah, I can never remember. Um, and it's um, again, it's a clever piece because it sort of seems to be about one thing, and then yeah, you know, is it all really about something else? Tell us a little bit about that. I played I played two characters because I played a boy who had cancer. That's right, yeah. Was dying of cancer. Yeah. yeah, was terminally ill. And then the second role I played was a spoilt, sort of, bit bit of a hypochondriac, sort of nervy, sort of twitchy boy. Yeah, and it, it's just such a fast-moving piece. Now, Alan did some really clever things, having angels and, like, wheelchair races. It was, it was really exciting. Very exciting piece of theatre. It's... It's an interesting play because it's for young people, as the novel yeah. is for young people. But it really deals with some big, oh, massive, some big issues and some big. To I mean, it, you know, it's about it's about death. It's coming it's to about terms with death, with terminal illnesses. Yeah. yeah. Um, the Queen in the title yeah. we initially think is going to be the late Queen Elizabeth II. Yeah. But actually, if I remember rightly, um, the boy meets. Um, a gay man. That's who's right. Died, who's terminally ill oh, yes, with yes. AIDS. Yes, that's right. And it's a sort of play on queen as also a, yeah, you know, yeah. um, a term for a gay man. So, you know, for, for a play for kind of 12 to 14 year olds, it, you know, it's... It packs a punch. Yeah, it doesn't patronise. So uh, tell us about the one that got away. Oh, goodness, how long you got? <laughs> uh, do you know, I've got, I've signed a lot of NDAs, so I've got to kind of be careful <laughs> with some of these. The one that I tell you what did get away, and I, I got it, but it did get away. I remember coming along to audition here. I think it was two thousand and I want to say twelve. You have a better knowledge of the Crescent and Mealies. It was again. It was Alan. He was directing Much Ado About Nothing. Yep, that was twenty twelve. Yep, and I was cast in it. I came along yep. to read. I was cast in the play. I won't say what part I played out of respect to I was casting. It was it was a good part, very good part, and I um and I, I couldn't well I, I dropped out due to a course commitment. Uh, so it yeah. was sort of like you know. So yeah. And that's a regret. I'd have absolutely loved to have done that. And I could have done it. Yes, I yeah. could have done you it. had the opportunity, I could, yeah. but circumstances yeah. prevented. Well it. again, I, I could have I mean they, they I thought oh I panicked. Oh, I'm meant to be auditioning for drama school. I, you know, I got a bit scatterbrained. Oh, I'm going to have to drop out of doing this. But I could have done it. That's a regret, for sure. Okay. Um, and tell us about a time when you died on stage. 
Oh, literally or metaphorically? Oh, I'll, I'll go metaphorically on this. I mean, I, I was dying in two weeks for the Queen in one of the characters. Yes, of course. But it's not the instance I was going to say. I rem- and this is a professional production. We were doing a tour of Aladdin. And we had a big show at the Chiswick Town Hall. This was a massive show. There was thousands upon thousands of kids there. There was town mayors, people very important mm. in the town. Anyway, oh, the night before, we'd gone out as a cast for a curry. <laughs> yep. And I had a vindaloo. Big mistake. <laughs> 9.30 in the morning, playing wishy-washy. <laughs> yeah, I think, without going into the gory details, I think it was a... That was definitely... A struggle and a challenge. I have to say that one. I, I don't think anything yeah. can trump that one. Did you get through it? Just about. <laughs> With great difficulty, because there wasn't an interval. But Ooh. I just about managed to get through it. Just about. Wow. And were you on stage a lot? The whole time. Because he's literally conducting the piece, isn't yeah. he? He'd yeah. vet, he would, oh, I'd go backstage if I was lucky for about 30 seconds. With Widow Twanky's help, I got through it. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> These things happen. These things happen, yeah. <laughs> Is there anything else you'd like to talk about, Alex? No, I've really enjoyed actually having a nice chat. It's been very nice. I was a bit nervous before I came on, but actually it's been really nice, really relaxed. Thank you for having me. Oh, thank you for coming on the podcast. Um, and we look forward to seeing There Are No Beginnings, which opens on the 22nd of October. To the 29th. Uh, to the 29th in the Crescent Studio. Yeah. Thanks very much. Thank you for listening to the Amateur of Life and Death podcast. If you'd like to listen to more, make sure you subscribe at podcast.crescent-theatre.co.uk or via Spotify or Apple Podcasts to get the next episode. You can find out more about the Crescent Theatre Birmingham and our upcoming productions, including There Are No Beginnings, by visiting www.crescent-theatre.co.uk or by following us on social media. Amateur of Life and Death is a Crescent Theatre production. This episode has been researched and presented by John O'Neill and Liz Plumpton. The music is by Brendan Stanley and the podcast is edited by Kevin Middleton.